Welcome to Going Back, 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 the sports history podcast with all the stories you need to know and some you don't. I'm Brian Gay, and with me here is my co-host, Tom Young. Each episode, Brian and I will be choosing a story from this week in sports history, and this episode will feature two events from March 26th to April 1st. And we'll be talking about some of the current events in today's sports and drinking some nice cold beers. Uh, today we got Cape May's Dive Master, nice d- double IPA, uh, based out of Cape May, New Jersey. So, Tom, um, let's get into it. Where, where, where are we starting this week? Sure. So, I figure, you know, in the light of the NCAA tournament we got going on, we just had some history happen last night. Yes, we are recording on a Saturday, different from our typical <laughs> Tuesday night. But, you know, got to work with uh, Brian's schedule here, traveling this week for work. So, doing with what we got. Uh, so, actually, for the first time in NCAA history, no number one seed will be advancing to the Elite Eight after last night's losses of Alabama to San Diego State, and Houston falling to Miami. I can't say I'm surprised. I haven't paid a ton of attention to college basketball, but the one thing that I can say is that there's just clearly not been one dominant team in basketball this year. For sure, a lot of parity out there. Yeah, it just seems like everyone ha- was at, is at risk every game, including the, the, the top seeds. So I'm not surprised, but it's really cool to see some of these schools moving through that you don't typically see get to this point in the tournament. FAU... Um, obviously, is one big one who I think could still continue to make some noise. Yeah, Florida Atlantic University making a, a deep run this year. I mean, how many people saw their nine seed making it this far? Yeah, and like I mean, I think we had briefly touched on that before we started recording. But I mean, they're a nine seed, but they went thirty four and three. Sure, they might play record. in like a mid major conference, but to only lose three games in, in a year, you got to be a pretty good basketball team. So, I You're think they're pretty smart. Right. Yeah, for sure. And then we got Kansas State under first year head coach Jerome Tang. Keontae Johnson is a really cool story, and they're a lot of fun to watch. I remember I was watching that game when he was playing for Florida a couple years ago, and all of a sudden he just, like, collapsed on the court. Yeah, he's it a really co- cool story. Pretty scary stuff. You know, you're just sitting there watching it, and all of a sudden he falls over, and you're like, what's going on? And then you yeah. find out what happened and took off. Uh, I think he's been off, what, two years now at this point and makes his comeback this year to play for Kansas State. And he's been awesome for them. Like, he yeah, looks like a bona fide first-round pick. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, I think he is projected going like the I top so. ten of the upcoming draft. Yeah, he's got some bounce. I mean, he just overall super athletic. Uh, I mean, they had that that play the other day, um, late in the, late in the game where like towards the end point guard starts comes up the floor. Yeah, Noel, he's been a stud so far. For looks them. like he's arguing with the coach and trying to pick what play they want to run. Next thing you know, Allie throwing to a Johnson, to jo- to Johnson. slam. Yeah, just like seals the win against Michigan State. Yeah, that was really cool. Um, Kansas State's another one of those where, like, don't really think of them as, like, a basketball powerhouse. I mean, last time, in my mind, last time they were relevant was when Michael Beasley was was playing there. I think they were two seed that year. Yeah, something along those lines. they had an early exit that year, I mean, they've been, they have a decent history in basketball, but I feel like they're overshadowed by their in-state counterpart, Kansas, Rock Chalk Jayhawk. Yeah, of course. I mean, you can't go... Can't go wrong with the Big 12. A lot of great teams in, in the Big 12 still. I mean, look over to the other side of the bracket. You got Texas. They advanced, beating Xavier last night very handedly. They get to face Miami tomorrow. Yeah, I'm a very hot Miami team, but Texas does look really good. They're another fun story because, I mean, their coach, Chris Beard, you know, got fired midseason after some allegations popped up. Um, and then their current coach is, I don't know his name off the top of my head, but he's basically coaching for the job. And, I mean, hey, it's a pretty good audition if you ask me. Yeah, I'm blanking on his first name. I'm pretty sure his last name's Terry. Um, I you're probably right. I could pull it up right here, but 
But either way, they've really rallied under this head coach. He, he's led them. They have very good, strong guard play, which is what it takes to win in the NCAA tournament, as we've seen, and which is why Miami's advanced and where they're at. Very good, Jim Laranega. Very good guard play. I mean, a uh, legendary coach in the, the world of basketball, Jim Laranega, has been at it down there for quite a while. Yeah, he was the one who took George Mason on that Final Four run. What <laughs> he was, I think that's right? what pro- I believe so, and it propelled him to where he's at now with Miami. Miami job, yeah. So that's a. That's a good one. I actually forgot that he was the coach at George Mason for that. Or were um, they an 11 seed that year and made it to the Final Four? Does that sound right? Let's 11 see. seed? George Mason. They Yeah, they were like an 11 or a 13 seed or something. I, I want to say double digit. Yeah. Uh, let's see. 11 seed. Okay. Yeah, it was, was ele- it the se- second time in history um, an 11 seed advanced to the Final Four, and that was 2006. Okay, a couple years off. Yeah, that was a team. I think Kyle O'Quinn was the big name on that team. Um Guy went on to play quite a few years in the NBA. I hope I'm right about that. Uh, he played for Norfolk State. Close enough. They went on a run. Another mid-major. Well, yeah, they. I remember them because they went on a run in 2012. Um, were they 14 they beat, that year? Yeah, they beat Missouri in the second round. Number Missouri was number two at the time. Okay. So, so they were 15 seed. No, no, uh, no, second round. Second okay, round. so they would have been. I mean, they were still a low seed. I just don't know. Okay, that makes sense. And I think what? they would have been the Let's 11 see. seed then. I think the six plays 11 initially, and then they would play in the second round against two seed. Oh, I guess they were a 15 seed, it says. Okay, so they beat them in the first round. Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah. So this, what I was reading just has it wrong. Well, you have to think now because they introduced uh, those. The playing games. Yeah, the playing games that count that as the quote unquote first round at this point. Stupid. Yeah, so Jim Laranega uh, was was at George Mason, uh, Bowling Green from '86 to '97, and then Mason from '97 to 2011. Now he's been at Florida or Miami since 2011. Um, just he's he's been around the block. He's created a very good program down there. Yeah, a lot of good guard play. They seem to have a few decent players pop up every year. I think it was Dylan, uh, not Dylan Larkin. That's a hockey player. Lark, uh, Larkin Shane. was the yeah, Shane, Shane Larkin. Larkin. I think son of uh, baseball player Barry Larkin. I do believe that's correct. Um, yeah, he played at University of Miami, and yeah, his dad is Barry Larkin. Yeah, some good genes there, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd say so. Uh, Miami's also a cool story with because on the women's side, their women's teams make a lot of noise. They just up, they oh upset that. a number one seed, and I believe they are also moving on to the elite eight. Um, on that side, they're a nine seed on the women's side, so. Really cool to see what's happening. Yeah, love the underdog story. I always love a good underdog, especially because, like, I would say my college team is Syracuse. I, to be honest, I'm thrilled that Jim Bayham is gone. Um, it was long overdue. Um, but, uh, you know, if they're not in it, I just want to see a good underdog. So, like, San Diego State over Alabama was really cool. That was a great win by them. San Diego yeah. State, I've watched a lot of their games this year. Very big, physical, very, um, very athletic team. Uh, a lot okay. of their guys just look like they've been, like, Formed in a lab somewhere, <laughs> bunch of like six eight, like built like yeah, lanky do. guys almost because yeah. like long wingspans, and because of that they were to shut down Alabama's three point, three point attack um, when they played the other night. So that was a great game. So they get to face Creighton in the Elite Eight. Uh, we had Princeton making that deep run, another fifteen seed. Yeah, beat Pr- Arizona to start, and then they got by. Forget who they beat there next, Missouri, and then they faced. Then Creighton got yeah him. Creighton last night. Yeah, Creighton got him by 11. Um, Creighton's very good. They started off the season very well, 6-0, and I believe was their record. And then their okay. best player, 7-2, seven, seven Ryan Kalkbrenner, he got sick while they were in Miami, uh, Hawaii, excuse me, 
at the Maui Invitational, and he ended up missing the next, like, six or seven games, and the team, other players got sick as well. So they kind of just, like, took a stumble. Next thing you know, they're, like, 500, fall out of the rankings. They were highs in yeah. the top ten. So I think they're if they don't have that, you know, speed bump in the middle of the season there, they're probably higher than a six seed. Yeah, Because they have a that. very talented team, and you watch them play. They have Ryan Nemhard, brother of Andrew Nemhard, who's yeah. in the NBA. He's a very yeah. good guard. And Kaluma's coming into his own. you got King off the bench. It's just been a very solid team for Creighton. And I think if they are able to get by San Diego State tomorrow, which is a game I'm very much looking forward to, they yeah. could potentially win that national championship as a six seed. Yeah, I mean, it would be really cool. I think the, the national championship really right now is more up for grabs than it ever has been before. I mean, Texas is the remaining, the highest seed remaining at the, at the two spot. They play Miami tomorrow. Um, I think there's just it's a lot of interesting basketball ahead of us. Um, I'm curious what your what your picks would be like because we got Kansas State and Florida Atlantic. Personally, I think Florida Atlantic's run ends w- with Kansas State. Yeah, I agree with you there. I just think Kansas State plays a really up tempo style of basketball that might benefit Florida Atlantic, but I just think that everything going on with KSU is it's going to be hard, too much for for Florida to top. Yeah, overall talent-wise, I think Kansas State will just be a little bit too much for them. Granted, Florida Atlantic has beaten who they've beaten so far. Memphis is a very yeah. talented team, but I don't think they're as disciplined or as good as Kansas State. Tennessee is just more of a physical team, very good defensive team, slow down, yeah. grind it out. And that showed in the second half the other night when they when those two played. They weren't able to make shots in the second half, so that's why they got sent home and Florida Atlantic advanced. Yeah. Um, UConn-Gonzaga is... That's the one game we haven't touched on yet, and probably the game I'm looking most looking forward to. Sure. I personally just... I don't like UConn. I have a bi- definitely bias against them from the years of Syracuse and the Big East when I was growing up. Yeah, tough not to. A uh, lot, of, lot of really good back-and-forth basketball um, in those years. Uh, specifically, the one the one game I think about is the 6 OT game back at Madison Square Garden that they played that was pretty wild. I that remember was with Kemba Walker, right? Kemba Walker and Hashim Thabit for UConn. Um, Syracuse, that was Johnny Flynn, Eric Devendorf, that group. Um, every, we were all huge Syracuse fans. So I remember like the next day at school, people coming in late or like just everyone was exhausted because we all stayed up for all six overtimes that ended at like one in the morning. Yeah, great game. Um, but I'm going Gonzaga here. I just think that... Timmy. Drew yeah, Timmy. love Drew Timmy and his ugly-ass mustache. Um, but he's just a really, really solid college ball player. He really willed them the other night against UCLA. They he were did. Down, I think it was 11 or 13 at halftime. Even he had 20-something at half. Yeah. And shout-out, Mark Few made in-game adjustments. UCLA wasn't able to overcome what Gonzaga threw at them. And they had um, – Blanking on his name, but I think Smith is the last name. He came off the bench, transferred from Chattanooga, and really sparked Gonzaga in the second half. And Gonzaga was up eight with about a minute, minute and a half to go. And next thing you know, they're down down one with like 30 seconds left. They almost threw the game away and didn't yeah. advance to face UConn. Thankfully, they hit the three-pointer with about 10 seconds left, and then UCLA is not even not able to get a shot off. Yeah. And Gonzaga advances to face a very talented UConn team, similar to what Creighton did, got off to a very hot start faded in the middle of the year in the Big East Conference. And then they've really been rolling the past couple weeks through the end of the season into the Big East tourney. And now the, you know, the big dance says we're rolling yeah. through March here. I think, you know, Gonzaga is one of those programs that comes into the year every year for the past decade with super high expectations. This is probably on paper the least talented team they've had in a few years because there's not that one, one stud, you know, it was Holmgren. Yeah, outside they had Holmgren. They had Suggs. Nemhard was really good. Even Timmy, though, I feel like I don't know what to expect from him. Like, 
he's just he's a really good college ball player. I'm not sure how he's going to translate to the NBA. I don't think he'll have much of an NBA game. He's kind of no. undersized as a big man too. He has very good post moves. Just if anyone's watching, you want to show your kids basketball one day, or you want to pick up some moves in the post, go watch what Drew Timmy does. Right. His footwork is impeccable. Good, great fundamental basketball player. For sure. And he has a tough matchup tonight against Sonogo from UConn. That guy is just a, a force down low. It's going to be tough for Gonzaga to pull it out. I'm rooting for Gonzaga. I want to see you know Drew Timmy potentially win one before his college career is over. Right. But I wouldn't be shocked if UConn pulled out the victory. They are the, the favorite tonight. Are they? They are, as the, yeah. As the lower seed. Correct. Interesting. Okay. So actually with all the Elite Eight games, this is the first time since 1985 where all of the favorites are not favored by more than four and a half points. So every every spread for the Elite Eight games are four and a half points or fewer. Well, that's why they call it March Madness, Tom, because it truly is madness. Yeah, and it's been awesome. It's been a great tournament. I know people aren't going to have, you know, the big-name schools there like Houston, Alabama, that'll get all the ratings, but it doesn't matter because you're going to root for the story, and the games have just been incredible. Well, I love this. Looking at the eight remaining teams, they're the only team, I mean, Kansas State, I don't know if any of these teams, UConn has a, does have a championship in the past 20-plus years, but that's it. None of these other guys have won a championship. Gonzaga's been there recently, but Gonzaga's they lost to Baylor a couple years yeah, ago. Yeah, Gonzaga's been there. They just didn't finish the job. So I just think it's – that's cool to me. And one of the things I love about March Madness is the chance for somebody to win that has never won before, you know, and to bring that that title home. And we will very likely be seeing that. Unless UConn wins, we're going to be seeing a team that has not won a title. Because I don't think Gonzaga's never won one, I believe. Not that I'm aware of. I don't know. Yeah. Texas, it's probably been a while since they've won one. I can't think of off the top of my head if they ever have. I don't think Miami has either. Obviously, Florida Atlantic has not. Kansas State, I don't believe so. Creighton, maybe back in the day. But San Diego State, they haven't either. I think this is the first time in program history they've gotten to the Elite Eight. So, actually, the only school in – the only university in Texas to ever win uh, an NCAA championship was the team we talked about last week, Texas Western. Okay. So the Longhorns have never done it. They have 28 total conference championships and have made 35 tournament appearances but have never won the big dance. Um, so it's really cool. I think we have a lot of interesting basketball ahead of us. Um, and we're going to keep talking March Madness here, but real quick, let's hear a word from our sponsor, and we will get back with you after that. This episode of Going Back, Back, Back is brought to you by Rucci Heating and Cooling LLC, located in Glen Mills, Pennsylvania. For all of your heating, air conditioning, and plumbing needs, call the professionals today at 484-849-1015. Rucci Heating and Cooling LLC, the one-stop call for your business and or home. Call them again at 484-849-1015. All right, and we are back. Um, Tom, I'm going to take the lead this week. Yeah, what do you got for me? You had it last, uh, last episode, and we are sticking here with March Madness. Kicking it back to... 1979, I believe this was March 26th of 1979, when the uh, NCAA Division One Basketball Championship game between Michigan State and Indiana State. Yeah, a team you don't even see in the NCAA tournament anymore, Indiana State, or if they do, it's, it's rare. <laughs> yeah, very rarely see them around these days. Um, so March 26th, 1979, at the Special Events Center at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Um, Indiana State Sycamores of the Missouri Valley Conference faced off against the Michigan State Spartans of the Big Ten. Sounds like a David versus Goliath when you look at it on paper, 
But honestly, it, it wasn't because the Sycamores entered the contest undefeated for the season while Michigan State and the Spartans had six losses. The reason that this game is really interesting and exciting, though, is because this was really the start of one of the most awesome rivalries in all of basketball history. Uh, Michigan State was led by a point guard named Urban Magic Johnson, a guy that we have talked about a bit on this podcast. I've heard of him before. Yeah, yeah, I think a few people. Some people have. Um, And then for Indiana State, there was this kid known as the Hick from French Lick, Larry Bird. Larry Legend. Larry Legend led the Sycamores. Uh, it was the first time they had ever competed against each other. And like I said, this led to a really awesome rivalry throughout the NBA in the 80s. I say it's amazing how it carried over from their college career. And I think this is what, the only time they play against each other in college? Yeah, this, this is it. Next thing you know, they're playing for the Lakers and Celtics and meeting in championships <laughs> yeah. left and right in the NBA finals. Yeah, so both of these guys were, um, this was their last year they played in college. They both went on to be first-round picks. Um, Naturally, right? Right. Well, in either the 78 or 79 draft, but I believe they both were 1979 uh, first-round picks. So, to start, so this game, first and foremost, holds a big place in history, like I said, because of that, the rivalry it kicked off. But it was also, it had the highest Nielsen ratings of any game in the history of American basketball, which means that more people watch this basketball game than any other game in basketball history. In American which is, basketball. Which is amazing, considering it was 1979, right? Yeah. How no. many people have TVs in their houses compared to what there right. is today, right? It's, and, it, you know, there's definitely things that take into consideration. Like, you don't have all the, the the selection you have now, so it was like you had three, four channels maybe. Yeah, and there's obviously not the streaming services. Yeah. And it, if you are having the one TV, everyone's probably using it wa- to watch that game that's on, yeah. on, on that night. But this was huge because there were these, uh, re- largely because of the two exciting talents in the game. So some backstory on this. Um, so Indiana State, going into the season, the Sycamores were not ranked in the Associated Press or United Press International preseason polls. And coaches in their own conference, the Missouri Valley Conference, didn't even pick them to win the league. So the team had been coached by Bob King in 1977 and 78. And going into this year was led by senior forward Larry Bird, who the previous season had averaged 30 points per game. Um, so he was second in D1 basketball at the time. And he was an All-American that year. So Indiana State's lineup that year also featured Carl Nix. He was a junior guard who was re- who was returning to the school after spending his sophomore season at Gulf Coast Community College. However, the four four starters from the 77-78 team, other than Larry Bird, had graduated. So this was a pretty new lineup. It wasn't a group of guys that had played a ton together coming into this season. Interesting. So obviously makes sense that they're not ranked headed into the season, not yeah. projected to win their conference. So all adds up at least to start start the year, but that's why you play the games. For sure. So a lot of turnover in the lineup. And then also before the start of the season, Coach King suffered a heart attack and ended up leaving the job. Uh, he that's a shame. Yeah, so he was actually wanted to be replaced by Bill Hodges. So coming out, the Sycamores won their first game against Lawrence University um, by whopping 43 points. 99, yeah, exactly. 99 to 56. Um, but then followed that performance up by traveling to Purdue, who now is a bit of a basketball powerhouse. For sure. Who does not know how to finish in the tournament. Their yeah. recent tournament finishes are really bad. Yeah, and they're the second ever 16 seed to lose to a one seed this year. Yeah, re- reverse that. For second, second, second one, one seed, seed to lose to a sixteen seed. Yeah, you got what I'm saying. But they've also lost. To, they've lost as a. They've been a one, two, or three seed the past few years and have lost to a double digit seed every year. It's fascinating. Yeah, I don't know how much longer Matt Painter can keep his job there, but we don't <laughs> need to talk about Purdue basketball today. <laughs> Carry on, Brian. Yeah, so uh, they ended up beating Purdue by 10 points. 
Um, and then in the third game of the season, Larry Bird went on to score 40 points in their 74-70 victory at Evansville. That began a streak of seven games in which Larry Bird scored over 30 points, including a 48-point effort against Butler. Sounds like this Larry guy's pretty good. Yeah, he's all right. He, uh, at the time, I feel like he was decently well-known. Uh, it was cool that he stayed in-state. I mean, he's from Indiana. Right. Uh, stayed in-state with Indiana State, though, not the Hoosiers, which is fascinating to me. Yeah, I'm sure. Like, why would you not want to go play for the better program? You know, I'd be curious to do some research and figure out if it was his choice or not, um, or if they just didn't recruit him at the time. And he, So, I don't know. I don't know enough about his. Yeah, maybe he wasn't a highly recruited prospect coming out of high school. Yeah, so we'll see. I'll, I'll, I'll do some research, and we'll figure it out. So, um by December December 12th, Indiana State did finally enter the AP poll at number 20, and they kept rising as the season progressed and the team remained unbeaten. One challenge came during a game against Bradley, which elected to play with a triangle and two defense that Bradley coach Dick Versace called the birdcage. The alignment was effective in containing bird. If you don't know what a triangle and two is, the three men are going to be playing in a zone defense. Two guys are going to get matched up, specifically uh, man on man. So the you typically do that when one team just has a totally dominant player. I remember doing that in high school a couple of times. There was a kid in our section that averaged thirty eight points a game. He got some extra attention everywhere he went. Yeah, I'm sure. So. I, you know, I played those defenses in like fifth and sixth grade just to like I would guard someone, then the other three guys would be playing his own and someone else would match up. Yep. Definitely a different defense, something you don't see very often anymore. You definitely don't see it in like the NCAA games in sure. like Division One, maybe still see in high school from time to time or like yeah. lower levels, but all in all, I feel like that defense is kind of like phased out of. Usually of happens the game. when you're on when you're overmatched. I feel like and you're trying to do what you can, but because for Bradley it did work though. They should have more teams probably should have taken this uh, um, strategy because the alignment was really effective in containing Bird. He actually went on to score four points, his lowest total in his career at Indiana State. He only took two shots, um, but the, the Indiana State did go on to win. In the end, but I mean, it, it's it hey, works. Con- contain it. You contain who you want to contain, but yeah, uh, if you do that and then you're playing false and you can't pull out the victory, that has to be a little demoralizing yeah. as a program. So it's fascinating just l- reading into this. So, um, start by s- they started the season not in the AP polls, but by February 13th, the Sycamores were the top ranked team in the country, and they held that position in the final rankings. So they were the number one team going into the NCAA tournament. They won all 16 of their games against their their um, conference competition, and they were the number one seed in the Midwest region of the NCAA tournament. Yeah, it's quite the turnaround from no expectations coming in here to <laughs> now running the table and being the number one seed. Yeah, just unreal. I feel like it's uh, it's almost unheard of. You don't really see that happening um, ever, especially, I mean, running the table in the first first place. You don't see that, especially in the men's game. In the women's you do, like South Carolina has, has done yeah, that. I now. mean, what, UConn won like 100-some straight games in, in their program <laughs> yeah. for like course of what yeah. three or four years without a loss yeah you definitely don't see that in the men's game though um so they came into this the number one seed uh they got the number one in the midwest region and they began their run in the in march madness with an 86 69 uh win over virginia tech they followed that up by beating oklahoma 93 72 so they came out swinging i mean yeah, guns, guns those, are blazing. those are two relatively big b- basketball programs especially oklahoma oh yeah um, and then they followed up the win over Oklahoma with a two-point victory against Arkansas, which bumped them into the Final Four. In that national se- in the Final Four in the national semifinal against DePaul, Larry the Le- Larry Legend went on to make 16 of 19 field goal attempts and had 16 rebounds and nine assists. It ended up being a very close game. Indiana State actually only won 76-74, but 
They ended up reaching the final um, without a loss on the season. They were 33-0. and Impressive. So, yeah, not bad. Came into that game as the clear number one. I didn't realize. So, I'm, I've heard, I'd heard about this game. I've read a bit about it. Apparently not enough because I figured they were the underdog. Because Michigan State is more as a perennial, I wouldn't say powerhouse anymore, but like they, under Tom Izzo at least, you know, for the past twenty plus years, they've been really good, um, on and off. So I mean, they always, they are always a good team under Tom Izzo. He's one of the best coaches in college yeah. basketball. So I would have thought the same thing. Michigan State, you know, Magic Johnson, sure, probably have better players coming there. I'm in the same boat as you. I would have totally thought the script would have been flipped. Compared to yeah. what it actually was. Well, this Michigan State team was not coached by Tom Izzo at the time. That would be pretty incredible. I mean, he'd be the, there'd be some Jim Beheim level lo- longevity. They were coached by Judd Heathcote, um, and they featured, obviously, the sophomore, Magic Johnson. Uh, he was instrumental in helping the team win the Big Ten Conference Championship the previous season. It was actually their first solo conference title since 58-59, so on, in about 20 years. The Spartans reached the regional finals at the 1978 NCAA tournament, but lost by three points to eventual champion Kentucky. So the year before, um, they had made it all the way to the regional finals. I believe that would be the Elite Eight. Correct. So um, this team also had Greg Kelser, who was later a first-round pick in the NBA draft. So they actually had more high-end talent than Indiana State did, but also they would have been playing at a higher level of competition. Sure, but it just seems like they didn't have the overall talent level compared to what indiana state might have that's fair so um michael wilbon known for uh part of the interruption pti yes sir said that entering the season the team was talented but just seemed a little less than they should have been in the big 10 he was a reporter at this time too I'm guessing. yeah okay. yeah so he just was making a, sure he wasn't like a no, coach or something <laughs> no, he was a writer he's been a journalist and writer it seems like his whole career um so the spartans began the season winning three straight games then lost uh, by one point, seventy to sixty nine against North uh, UNC. So North Carolina got them. Michigan State then followed that loss with six straight wins, and they were the top ranked uh, team in the AP poll in early January. But then the team they went on to lose two consecutive games, one to Illinois and one to Purdue, both lost on buzzer beating jump shots. Uh, the same Purdue team that Indiana State managed to beat earlier in the year. That can really derail the season a bit. Heart, two heartbreak losses like that back-to-back. Back. Yes, sir. It caused them to fall five places in the polls. Um, they followed that up with a blowout victory over Indiana and an overtime win against Iowa. After following those games, they were ranked third in the AP polls. They went on to lose against interstate rival Michigan as Keith Smith made the winning free throw with no time remaining. Following that, mich- that tough loss to Michigan, they... Actually ended up losing to a totally unheralded Northwestern team. They got smoked, 83-65, giving them their fourth loss in six games. So at that point, it probably felt like the Wheelers were coming off for Michigan State. That's that's definitely a bad loss. I know Northwestern played well in the tournament this year, but this is 2023. This isn't 1979. Mm -hmm. So after that humiliating loss to Northwestern, they went to take on the Ohio State University Buckeyes in a contest that went to overtime with the Spartans emerging 84-79, um, kicking off yet another winning streak. They ran off wins in their next nine games, defeating four of the teams that had beaten them previously. Um, Wisconsin snapped that streak in the final game before the tournament, beating them 83-81 on a long-range three at the buzzer. The Spartans were actually 13-5 and in the Big Ten. It put them in a three-way tie with Iowa and Purdue for first in the conference. So it sounds like the, the Big Ten was pretty heavily contested. Usually is. Yeah, yeah, typically is. Um, and they won 21 of 27 games in all regular season play, ending the year at number three in the AP poll. So, 
interesting that to hear that this. I'm wondering if they changed the way that they've done seeding over the years, because they were a number three seed, but they were they were the number three in the poll, but then was awarded the second seed in the Mid East Regional for the NCAA tournament. Um, going on to defeat the Lamar Cardinals by almost thirty or by over thirty points in their first game, and then advanced to the regional semifinal where they beat third seeded LSU by sixteen. In the regional final, they went on to beat the Mid-East region's top seed, which is Notre Dame, the Fighting Irish. Beat them by 12, moving them on to the final four, where they faced none other than the Penn Quakers. Yeah, oh, Penn. In the final four. Ivy League basketball, making them make <laughs> a comeback. Uh, yeah, that comeback that got completely squashed out as Michigan went on to beat them 101-67 to to gain a berth in the NCAA title game. Uh, Magic Johnson Pez had a triple-double in that game. Um, with 29 points, 10 boards, and 10 assists. Sounds like a career average stat line for Magic. Yes, sir. So entering the national championship game, they ha- they were sitting at 25 and six when when Indiana State was 33 and 0. So the 1979 NCAA Final Four, uh, which included the national championship game, was all televised by NBC. Uh, it was announced by Dick Enberg, Al McGuire, and Billy Packer, while the halftime show was hosted by Brian Gumble. The Nielsen ratings for the championship game were 24.1, which honestly means not much to me besides the fact that the figure is the highest for any basketball game in the United States as of 2017. The estimated audience was around 40 million people in 18 million households, and the number of viewers increased 20% from the 78 NCAA tournament final. Now, I think that was only that had to be because people knew uh, that you were seeing this this matchup. Yeah, the matchup. If you're not getting... Larry Bird versus Magic Johnson. I don't think Indiana State versus Michigan State is going to be a big draw. No, typically not. So, heading the game, um, like I said, March 26th, 1979, in the Special Events Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Off the opening tip-off, the Spartans gained control of the ball only for Magic Johnson to commit a travel because he ended up stepping on the feet of Indiana State's Brad Miley. The Sycamores ended up scoring the first basket of the game, made by Steve Reed. The two teams played a close game in the early stages. A successful shot by Larry Bird gave Indiana State a one-point advantage, and Michigan called a timeout after that shot. Spartans went on to take a 9-8 lead on a basket by guard Terry Donnelly, four minutes and 26 seconds into the contest. Michigan State used that play to begin a scoring run, outscoring Indiana State 9-0-9-0 during that stretch, which included a three-point play by guard Mike Berkovich. B-R-K-O-V-I-C-H. Berkovich. It feels like missing a vowel. I know it's not, but it feels like it is. The Spartans' game plan on defense really was just to stop Larry Bird. Um, trap, him, trap him near the baseline in an effort to prevent him from receiving the ball. In addition, their strategy led to multiple instances in which Bird became uncertain as to what he should do, whether he should pass the ball or put a shot up. Because of this defensive play, um, Larry's effectiveness was limited, but Michigan State's players committed a ton of personal fouls. Both Magic Johnson and Kelser had three fouls in the first half and were forced to leave the game. And for those of you who aren't aware, in college basketball, you only get five fouls. NBA, you get six. Yeah. So if you get three in the first half, I mean, that's rare. Usually most coaches, at least today. You usually get four world, or two. If you get two fouls in the first half, you're probably sitting on the bench <laughs> until the uh, second half starts. Yeah, for sure. I mean, especially if you're for star players like Magic Johnson and Kelser, the two guys both went on to be first-round picks. To have both of them in foul trouble in the first half. You gotta sit. You gotta sit them, or else you, there's a very good chance you don't have them for a majority of the second half. Yeah, you pick up a fourth foul in the first half. You might as well just play the second half with like five minutes to go and hope for the best. Yeah. Or you're not playing defense and only playing offense <laughs> and just like standing there and hoping. Yeah. 
they don't target you. Right. So, despite these foul issues, uh, Michigan State actually extended their lead over the Sycamores to 12 as the first half neared its end. And after the first 20 minutes of play, Michigan State was in the lead 37-28. to 28. To begin the second half, Kelser made a shot six feet from the basket, and including those two points, the Spartans scored seven consecutive points to then bring their lead to 16 to uh, start the half. Donnelly contributed four straight field goals as the Spartans climbed to, to 50 to 34. Indiana State began to rally at this point with two made field goal attempts each for Bird and Bob Heaton. Now, at the time, Michigan State's lead remained around 10 points. Um, Kelser's foul troubles, though, began to worsen as he committed his fourth of the, uh, of the game four minutes and 27 seconds into the second half. Michigan State was forced to remove him for reserve Jay Vincent, who was suffering from a foot bruise at the time. Um, in 19 overall minutes of playing time, Vincent himself picked up four fouls. So Indiana State focused on playing close to the opposing basket while Kelser was out of the game. He was a big defensive uh, big defensive uh, presence in the post. And Larry Bird, who actually started at center for Indiana State in this game, uh, key to Sycamore scoring on with two field goals and a free throw. With 10.05 remaining, the Spartans' lead had been cut to six, 52 to 46. Kelser was brought back into the game in response to the run and did not commit another foul until the end of the game. Between him and Magic Johnson, they were responsible for the next eight points scored by the Spartans. The run included a four-point play by uh, by Magic, Magic Johnson, threw down a slam dunk while being fouled um, by Heaton, and ended up sinking two free throws that were awarded because Heaton was judged to have undercut him. So that gets something like technical, technical or on flagrant. there. A flagrant. It sounds like that would, would be a flagrant, yeah. So for the last five minutes of the game, the Spartans held the ball for long periods of time to burn off the clock. Um... Larry Bird actually received a technical foul himself for one play in which he illegally stole the ball from Magic Johnson while he was attempting an inbounds pass, and he tried to score. Yeah, you can't do that. <laughs> no, you got to let the ball get into play. So behind an offense that missed only four of 16 second-half field goal attempts, Michigan State went on to claim its first men's basketball championship by a 75-64 final score with Irving Magic Johnson as uh, the tournament's most outstanding player, having scored 53 points on 17 of 25 shooting during the final two games of the season, the final four in the championship. So statistically for that game, Magic Johnson led all scorers in the national championship with 24 points on 8 of 15 shooting. Kelser added 19 points and led the Spartans with 8 rebounds, one more, uh, one more than Magic had. Donnelly was the only other Michigan State player to score in double figures. He made all five of his field goal attempts and ended the game with 15 points. That's just some great efficiency. You love to have that kind of role player on your team. Hey, great day at the office. <laughs> right. Um, so, actually, six, only six players scored for Michigan State all game. Ron Charles, um, the earlier mentioned Vincent, and Mike Berkovich were the other Spartan players to score points. Each contributed between five and seven points to the total. Um, the Spartans overall made 26 of their 43 shots, so pretty efficient um, from the field. Now, on the Indiana State side, Larry Bird was the team's leading scorer, but he uh, was 7 for 21 from the field. So a lot of missed shots. Um, but he also chipped in 13 rebounds as the top rebounder for either team. Nix made f half of his 14 shots and scored 17 points, while Heaton added 10 points. Four other players contributed points for Indiana State, but the team was the team only shot tw 27 of 64 field goal, uh, was 27 of 64 on their shot attempts. So they actually out. They had twenty one more shots than Michigan State. Wow! And only, but only made one more than Michigan State. So Michigan was really uh, so the Spartans were really efficient from the field. Um, the fi and the Sycamores really dropped the ball with their free throw shooting as well. Um, they missed. They, they shot ten for twenty two on the from the free throw line. 
That's a killer. While the Spartans were 23 of 33. Wow, neither team shot the ball really well from the line. No, so the free throw scoring differential was thus, was actually bigger than the margin of victory. So Michigan State took it. It was really, and according to Michael Wilbon and, and other basketball historians, this was the year that really increased the interest in the NCAA tournament and what kick-started the true March madness that we know now. Makes sense. Um, so that the 79 championship game, because it increased the interest, it actually underwent two uh, two expansions in the following decade in terms of the, the field of the play. So there was, because of the interest in this and seeing different teams do what they can, they expanded the, bra- the, the bracket. I'm not sure if they expanded it fully to what we see now. I'm not sure what year 64 teams came into play. And now, obviously, there are 68. I got you. That'll be a nice uh, story. But there we go. Perfect. So Bert, um, Larry Bird and Magic Johnson both went on to turn pro after that season and wound up playing, as we all know, for the Celtics and the Lakers. Um, the 1979 NCAA championship game was the first encounter in a rivalry that developed as the two continued their careers. The Celtics and Lakers met three times in the NBA Finals during the 80s, and the pair helped to increase national interest in the NBA. Um, ESPN's Andy Katz wrote that Larry Bird and Magic Johnson helped create the interest in the Final Four, and they made today's NBA, which honestly makes a lot of sense. You look at the way that the game is played today. Larry Bird is a sweet shooter, trash talker, played a really brash game. Magic Johnson is kind of the prototype. Do-it-all player. Yeah, the prototype for what you want a guy to be now. So um, that is the 1979 NCAA championship game featuring two of the greatest of all time. Um, Really cool game. Would be a lot of fun to go back and watch the highlights from that one, watch the replay. Yeah, it makes me wish I was around then. Unfortunately, Brian, you and I were not born (laughs) at the time. No, it was a few years before we came into the picture. Yeah, uh, what, 14? You said 79? Yeah, 14 years. 14 years before we existed. Um. Would have been nice to, to see the game, but definitely need to go back, catch some highlights. Um, and we'll, So with that said, you have anything else you want to add to that no. game before we move no, on? No, that's it. I think I, we, we, we got real, real in-depth on that one. It's a pretty cool game. Indiana State, I don't think you'd ever think of them as being the, the, the Goliath in this situation, but really they were um, coming in at 33-0. and And Magic Johnson led the team to a, to a huge win, and... You know, now Michigan State is really very well known for their basketball program. Well, Indiana State, not so much. The Sycamore is a very cool name. <laughs> they did for a tree. Yeah, I mean, wish I wish I had, you know, Sycamores, that's a cool name, but, like, it's Spartans, that's a cool name, too. Right, <laughs> right. Spartans are a little more, a little more ferocious. It sounds a little stronger of a name. Yeah, I don't think you're very intimidating when you're going to the Sycamores gymnasium, are you? I mean, if you're going to face the Spartans, it's a little different story. No, Indiana's got to figure out their name because of the Hoosiers and the Sycamores. Neither of those are... Uh, not it. Yeah, I don't know who came up with those, but hey, we're not here to debate that or figure it out either. So with my story tonight, Brian, um, I'm going back to April 1st, 1985, and I'm going to revisit the NCAA men's national title game as well. So a couple years fast forward in from yours, but we got the Villanova Wildcats local team versus the Georgetown Hoyas. You could also argue another David versus Goliath type matchup, as um, just like your story, as Nova was the eight seed and was an eight-point underdog heading into the game. This one's kind of cool, though, too, because they're both in the grand scheme and kind of smaller schools. Villanova's not very big. Georgetown's not either, but they're just both very well known for their basketball programs. Yeah, not much else outside of that. Both great academic schools. Yeah. But I don't hear anything about, like, their football programs, like a lot of these other top Division I uh, schools you see in the tournament each year. Yep. 
So Georgetown, they are the number one overall seed, boasting a 35-2 record coming into the tournament and future Hall of Famer in NBA legend Patrick Ewing. So Georgetown, they actually won the national title the year before. So coming into this game, they had all the good vibes and they were hoping to repeat as national champions. So one thing to keep in mind as we dive into this story, there was no shot clock at the time in college basketball. And after the season, one was actually implemented. So, Brian, do you know how long the first shot clock was in college basketball? My guess would be like 35 seconds. You got to add 10 more seconds. 45 seconds? So, they started at 45 seconds. And the Big East, they actually experimented with it during like their regular season play. But that was just like their conference and no one else. So, when you get to the NCAA tournament, the shot clock is now gone. Interesting. Okay. So, in today's game, it's now 30 seconds. And then if... You get, like, an offensive rebound resets to 20, but no longer 45 seconds, which, like, is an absolute eternity in the game of basketball. Yeah, that really is a long time. So, to start, Villanova, they go 19-10 and 10 in the regular season. By no means, they had a great year, and with that record, deserve the eight seed and were on the bubble, you know, heading into the tournament, hoping to get in. Prefer- before their first tournament game against the Dayton Flyers, head coach Raleigh Massimino was quoted to say, I got one more game left with these guys pointing to the fact that his veteran veteran team struggled during the season and didn't play up to their potential. Now, Raleigh, do you know much about Raleigh, Brian? Uh, familiar with the name, but no, not too familiar with anything beyond that. Yeah, so one of the most you know historic head coaches in Big East college basketball, he was a very important figure for the team, and one could argue a major reason why Villanova is where it is today. So each coach has their own thing for the players to buy into, and Raleigh was certainly no different. He made his players buy into the whole family concept. So his pitch to recruits was, you come to Villanova to play basketball, and you'll be a part of this family. We'll have pasta dinners, talk about life. This way you come to love each other like brothers. Solid sales pitch, if you ask me. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, as somebody who's played a lot of team sports, it's if you buy into the guys around you and, and what you're all trying to do, it makes for a better experience and tends to you know make for a better team. Yeah, agreed 100% there. So this pitch and belief led to three recruits who would form the nucleus of the championship team. Those three players were Ed Pickney, Dwayne McLean, and Gary McLean. Dwayne and Gary, they're not related. Different spellings for the last name. I was going to ask that. So Dwayne is M-C capital C-L-A-I-N. Gary is M-C capital L-A-I-N. Interesting. Okay. So ironic, but yeah, not related. So these three players were crucial towards the program's success and potentially could have had another title to their resume if it wasn't for facing MJ and UNC in 1982 or in 1983 facing Houston and their Phi Slamma team. Both those losses came in the Sweet 16, and Raleigh actually thought his best team was that 1983 one. The one that lost to Houston? Yeah. I mean, that Phi Slamma Jamma, you know, Hakeem Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler, that's a... Yeah, two Hall of Famer, two Hall of Famers on that roster. Yeah, and you get to arguably face the greatest player ever the year before, Michael Jordan. Yeah, yeah, good thing. Rough, rough, rough go of things. Not a great start to your college career either, being <laughs> a freshman and sophomore. No. So these losses, you know, those are the types of losses that help build character and set you up for success in the future. Granted, in today's NCAA, after one year, most players leave and head to the NBA, where back then guys were sticking around for three or four years. Yeah. So the Big East was the cream of the crop during the 1980s, and most games were like heavyweight fights, even when teams didn't have good records. Those were just the types of games that were expected to be played. So in the 1985 Big East season, Villanova ended up having nine losses during conference play, 
and perhaps one of the most memorable ones was the one right before the Big East tournament. So Villanova, they're down 40-23 to at halftime to Pittsburgh on the road, and Raleigh told his starters during the intermission, they got two minutes to turn things around, or he's pulling them for the rest of the game. So Raleigh somewhat sticks to his word, gives them an extra minute to get it together, and then finally pulls all five of his starters. So for the remaining 17 minutes of the game, the bench guys finish it out. Not a great great way to have you know some good vibes heading into postseason play in the NCAA. No, but I respect the coach that sticks to his word, and he told him he was going to do it, and he did it. That's important. I think if he didn't, maybe things go a different direction for this Nova team. Yeah, and especially you know, especially coaching at this level, the younger level, not the professional level, coaches really do help shape and form their players and who they can become down the ro- who they are down the road and. You know, to to have someone like that to make that decision, you might not have liked it at the time, but I think you'd appreciate it. Yeah, but I mean, the lessons learned from it. If I went and go back and win the national title that year, and I can look back at, hey, maybe this is like a bonding moment. I know we struggled, didn't win those games against Houston and UNC, but maybe this was our wake up call, and that's exactly what it seems like they needed. A little kick in the pants. Yeah, for sure. So this loss gives Villanova a eighteen and nine, eighteen and nine record for the regular season. So in the first round of the Big East Tournament was a rematch with Pittsburgh. Nova knew their chances to make the NCAA tourney were, tourney were not great and needed to do something to get into the big dance. Yeah, words are hard sometimes. Tourney. Tourney. <laughs> yeah, tough to come back from that one. So win versus Pittsburgh, you know, they get their revenge, they start things off, puts them in the right direction. However... They lose in the next round of the Big East Tournament to a very talented St. John's team and had to wait for the NCAA committee to reveal the bracket. Oh, so they were waiting to see if they would even get in at that point. Yeah, more or less. I mean, a lot of people thought that win against Pittsburgh kind of put them over the edge to get into the dance. But you never know. Sometimes the committee looks the other way and picks somebody different. And those those 8-9 seeds, they're usually the last ones in because the lower-level seeds, like those 11, 12s, 13s, 14s, and 15s, and 16s, they're all usually... Like conference twenty winners of like mid majors, yeah, all right, that makes sense. So, luckily for Villanova, like we were touching earlier, you weren't sure when the field was expanded to sixty four teams. This was actually the first year it expanded to where it is today. Oh, nice. Short of the sixty eight. So this is eighty eighty four. Yeah, nineteen eighty five. Eighty five. Okay. Yeah, nineteen eighty four, nineteen eighty five season. We've been throwing a lot of years out past two stories. So, yeah. So, spring of eighty five, they announced the field. Um, well, before that, but the field gets expanded to 64 for the first time that spring. So they earn the eight seed in the tournament and a first-round matchup with the Dayton Flyers. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there was no shot clock in this era of college basketball, which played right into the strength of Raleigh Massimino and his pace of play he wanted for his Wildcats. He preferred a slow tempo on offense and actually had 55 different defensive sets to deploy versus opposing offenses. Each defense had their own wrinkle to it and were all in his playbook. To earn so many different ones, he called them multiples. Yeah, I, I don't understand that. I played basketball up through the AAU level in high school, and I don't know how you would have 55 different defensive schemes in basketball. I mean, I guess so, like, you can obviously start man-to-man. You can then sure. trap man-to-man. You can then go sure two, two, three, one, three, one. Like just you talked slight, about. slight variations off yeah. the same thing. Triangle and two. You also have the box and one similar to the triangle and two where you yeah. form a box with your four players. One guy travels like their best player. 
there's so many different defenses out there, but then you can just add slight variations yeah, to fair. make the different different styles. Sense. That's why I call the multiples, right? All right. So onto the tournament we go, and a first round matchup with those Dayton Flyers. Now back then, um, the first round games they were actually on like your home court. So Dayton is the eight uh, eight seed. Or no, yeah, no, it was the eight seed, but the game was actually in Dayton and on their home court because of where the um, what bracket they were placed into region, okay. I should say. So at the time, um, and as you could imagine, Raleigh didn't change things up now and stuck to his team's strengths. A win over Dayton by a score of fifty-one to forty-nine. Now a second-round matchup against one seed in the southeast region was against Michigan, and another low-scoring affair happened. This time, Villanova wins 59-55, and the Wildcats advance to the Sweet 16. In this matchup, they get uh, the Maryland Terps, who were the five seed of that region. Another win, and an even lower score this time around, with a final of 46-43. to <laughs> Some thrilling basketball. Yeah, probably not something that's going <laughs> to generate a lot of views in today's world. No, definitely not. So, in the Elite Eight and the Southeast Regional Final was a matchup against the Tar Heels from the University of North Carolina. Now, Michael Jordan was not on this team, but it still had some notable names in Kenny the Jet Smith and Brad Doherty, who would end up being the number one pick in the draft two years later. The Wildcats were victorious again, beating UNC by a score of 56-44. to However, Villanova was down 22-17 to at halftime, and Raleigh, being the big character that he was, gave a memorable halftime speech, one that later became known as the Spaghetti Speech. As recalled by player Dwayne McLean, Raleigh said during the speech, I don't need this. You know what I'd like right now? A big bowl of spags and some clam sauce. <laughs> oh, that's some, like, uh, Delco Italian right there. So after a deep breath, Massimino told his team, hey, guys, just go out and play. Go out and play they did, erasing that halftime deficit and having their largest win of the tourney. So now we're moving on to the final four. Villanova gets to play Memphis State, and by no surprise, has another low-scoring game. They win this one 52-45. So through five tournament games, Villanova is averaging 52.8 points per game and only allowing 47.2. So now, to set the stage a little bit, we got to go back to the regular season for a second. Villanova, they knew they couldn't beat St. John's, as they were a much more athletic team compared to them, and they were kind of even more athletic than Georgetown. St. John's actually handed Georgetown one of their two regular season losses, so Villanova was pulling for the Hoyas to win their matchup in the Final Four against St. John's. This is a St. John's team led by Chris Mullen, actually, as well. Correct. So that's a that's pretty high-powered. Yeah, and that's, that's where we're getting here. So St. John's, they handily had beaten Villanova in the regular season, and they were the ones to knock them out in the Big East tournament in their semifinal matchup. Okay. So they knew they couldn't really compete with them, as they had lost pretty handily both games when they faced them throughout the year. So with that said, Villanova had a belief that they could beat Georgetown because their games are much closer. Granted, Villanova lost both matchups. They lost game one at Villanova 52-50 to in overtime, and then down in Georgetown, they lost 57-50, to so two losses with a combined nine points. All right. So many people believe, though, that the game between St. John's and Georgetown was the quote-unquote championship game because of the heavyweight matchup between the two number one seeds and the tourney. Thankfully for Villanova, they got their wish as the Hoyas blew out the Red Storm and a decisive victory of 77-259. That's cool. I don't know if those two matched up, but that 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 matchup had two uh, two Dream Team guys on it with Mullen and, and Ewing. Yeah, a lot of great talent on that floor that game, but 
thankfully for Villanova, the Hoyas won. There you go. Now, a little background on this Georgetown Hoyas team. They were known as the evil empire in college basketball. And by the time 7-foot, 240-pound Patrick Ewing arrived for the 1981-1982 season, Georgetown had reached the NCAA tournament five times in seven years, but it was with Ewing that the bar was raised even higher. Naturally, right, when you add that type of talent to yeah, the team? I think, and I think a lot of current NBA fans probably don't even realize how dominant he was, especially when he first came around. And, and obviously in the NBA, he was an amazing player, but yeah, he was truly a dominant college player as well. Yeah, one of the all-time greats in college. So the Hoyas, they played for the national title three times in four years and won the school's only national championship in 1984. So the Hoyas, they played a hard game of basketball, fouled hard, and didn't talk much about it afterward. The Big East prospered in large part through media friendliness and access, but Georgetown was the exception to that. Reporters seeking post-game comment from the Hoya players were subjected to a narrow window with a publicist countdown starting at 10 minutes. He'd let them know when they had seven minutes left, four minutes, one minute, and then the locker room would all of a sudden be closed. Didn't matter if someone in the media was in mid-question or the player was in mid-answer, the media session would be over. Can't imagine that would uh, fly well today. (laughs) No, not particularly. So the Hoyas were a target as broad as Coach John Thompson's torso, and the media took endless shots at them. Georgetown's image was summed up as Hoya Paranoia, a phrase popularized by the Washington Post Mark Asher in 1980 and intended only to describe the insecurity of longtime fans who felt their team was slighted by media in favor of, of Maryland. It came to mean something quite different, Asher went on to say. So players themselves found this coverage hilarious. That whole era, we had ton, ton of fun as a team, said player Michael Jackson, who is a point guard on the 85 team. Different Michael Jackson. (laughs) Of course, people outside the program believed with Hoya paranoia and all that stuff um, that we were a bunch of thugs. We just listened and laughed. That image sold papers and made people watch us on television. So, in truth, the reality lay somewhere between the media myth and the team's sweet memory. Uh, One of the guards, uh, Steve Martin, the 85 power forward who played for four years alongside Ewing, says, we had a black coach and in most years an all-black team. We were physical, and we were aggressive. We knew we intimidated people, and we milked that. And John was the leader, along with Patrick, who was about as intense as an individual as I have ever met. I remember once earlier in my junior year, John said to me, Son, I think you've been uh, homogenized. Is that he said? Homogenized. Homogenized, yeah. That's why I let you do the talking, Brian. <laughs> if you don't know what that means, look it up, and then we'll talk about it. Yeah, I should probably go look it up <laughs> myself. So, well, it means to purify, which I took to mean make whiter. He was telling me that I was playing soft, and I took serious offense to that. Sometimes the things he said to people got pretty personal. So John Thompson was kind of like a no-holds-barred coach and laid it all out there for you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's a a legend uh, of the game as well. Now, as for being unpopular, in truth, the Georgetown program of the mid-1980s was the precursor to UNLV's running Rebels and Michigan's Fab Five of the early 90s, Teams compromised primarily of African-American athletes who played with toughness and style. True swagger. And apparently it just made white America a little bit uncomfortable. And Coach Thompson shrugged then, shrugs now, and says, we sold more product than any other program in the country. That included t-shirts, hats, sweatshirts, etc. He also said, I didn't care about being liked. I just wanted our program to be respected. And in 1985, that might have been the best team I had. I don't think there was a living soul in the country who didn't think we were the better team. 
So the stage is now set for our David versus Goliath matchup on Monday, April 1st, 1985. Massimino and his coaching staff, they got to work right away, meeting in his hotel room at 5 a.m. on Sunday morning. So they knew Georgetown coach John Thompson wasn't going to change much heading into their matchup. So the Nova coaching staff game plan for that and added more wrinkles into their offense and defensive sets. So the Wildcats, as I mentioned earlier, play a lot of defenses, up to 55 different versions of them, mainly zone, and on Georgetown's first pass would often switch to a matchup or man-to-man. So you start out 2-3, switch to man in the middle of it, and it confuses the offense. Oh, yeah. So Steve Lapis, assistant coach, said the goal was to make Georgetown run his own offense while we were playing man-to-man, and they wouldn't even realize it. They also dropped a guard down to double-team Ewing, but this time from his blind side, something they did not do in the regular season. Now, Coach Raleigh Massimino said, Offensively, we just tweaked a few things to make sure we got the ball to Eddie. We love to play against Patrick. One other thing they would do, put the ball, put the ball in McLean's hands and let him beat Georgetown Swarming, 94-foot defense with his skills, his head, and his heart. Now this game, it's widely regarded as a shot clock victory for Villanova, meaning they just held on to the ball and played keep away from Georgetown. But that's not entirely true. So the Wildcats, they played very deliberately, like Snails Pigney said, but almost always with purpose. So Villanova, they had 58 possessions in the game and only four times held the ball for more than 45 seconds, including a nearly two-minute possession at the end of the first half, when Georgetown refused to come out of their passive 1-3-1 zone. So forward Harold Presley made a basket with four seconds left for Villanova, up and over Patrick Ewing, sending the Wildcats with a 29-28 lead into halftime. So in the game, Villanova had 55 possessions, and on 41 of those, Villanova's shot was fouled or committed a turnover in less than 30 seconds. True to Massimino's pregame speech, Nova played to win. So many thought the Wildcats had to play a perfect game, and while they did it to an extent, Villanova's game was not flawless. They actually turned the ball over 17 times, and Georgetown turned it over 11. Guard Harold Jensen for the Cats, he actually had six by himself. Part of what is so fascinating about the game is that Villanova, when it did not turn the ball over, almost always scored. So, so so a lot of turnovers, but when they didn't turn it over, they were Super efficient. Yes, putting the ball in the hoop, and that's how you that's get the upset. Only way that you're winning with 17 turnovers is by, it <laughs> is by losing the turnover battle is by being very efficient when you're not turning it over. Makes sense. So we get late into the second half. Villanova is up 53-48 to 48 with about six minutes left to play in the game. So one would think that's a good thing with this methodical pace of play the Wildcats possess, but certain, turns out Georgetown wasn't ready to go away just yet. The defending champions, they rip off six straight points to take a one-point lead. Now, the Hoyas themselves, they tried to take one out of Nova's playbook and went into a four-corners offense. They stalled for about 30 seconds before they ended up turning the ball over. Uh, Bill Martin threw a pass that went off the teammate, Horace Broadnax, and out of bounds. After the game, both were not pleased with how this turned out. Um, So Martin said, I throw a bad pass that Horace was too lazy to bend over and catch. It was a low pass. Personally, I would have caught it. Passing the blame. Yeah, I mean, naturally, I guess that's what you got to do when you feel like he could have caught it, right? Even sure. though it probably was a bad pass. And then Broadnax was quoted to say, a lot of people said it was a tough pass. If you're trying to win championships, you've got to catch it. You just got to. So following that turnover, Villanova had held the ball for 62 seconds until Jensen drilled the wide-open jump shot 
from the right side with 2.37 left on the clock. The Wildcats will not trail again in the game, pulling out a victory over their rival Hoyas by a score of 66-44 to and ended up cutting down the nets in Rupp Arena that night. Thank God for the shot clock. That sounds so boring. Yeah, I couldn't imagine sitting there watching a game and all of a sudden a team just sits there with the ball <laughs> for a minute. No, it, it's interesting though also how this story then also goes back and ties into last week's episode with you said Rupp Arena. Adolph Rupp was a very prominent figure in your story last week as yes, well. Yes, he was. So ultimately the Wildcats, they averaged 55.2 points in the tournament, the lowest for a champion since Oklahoma A&M's 46.3 in 1946. <laughs> Oklahoma A&M. I imagine that's a record that will never be broken. No, absolutely not. So the game earned the nickname the perfect game because Villanova had to play almost flawlessly, especially in the second half, when the Wildcats shot 9 of 10 from the field to win by just two points. So they only shot 10 shots the whole second half. It's 20 minutes of basketball. That is, that's outrageous. Yeah, imagine that's boring to watch, right? Yeah. So I also touched on this at the beginning of the story, but um, all five starters for the Hoyas went on to play in the NBA starting with Patrick Ewing, Reggie Williams, Bill Martin, Michael Jackson, and David Wingate, while the Wildcats had future pros in center Ed Pickney, and then forwards Dwayne McLean and Harold Presley. Wow, that's a lot of of NBA talent. I'm more familiar with the guys from the Georgetown side. For sure. I was worried about Ed Pickney. I didn't know that Dwayne and Harold made it to the league. Yeah. And then one last cool tidbit I found on the season this year. So the Big East got a record three teams to the Final Four in 1985. So Nova, St. John's, and Georgetown, all Big East teams. Okay. And then Boston College, they actually lost to Memphis in the Sweet 16, or maybe it was four teams that potentially get there. Now, since the Big East placed three teams in the Final Four, 19 of the 34 since have included two members of the same conference. The Big Ten has done it six times. The ACC has done it five times. And it happened seven times in a row from 1999 to 2005. So... I don't know if that will be a record that's ever broken either. Three teams from the same conference in the Final Four. Yeah, I can't imagine that happening, but there is some. There are a number of really good conferences in basketball, in college basketball. So I could see it happening again. The ACC, the ACC specifically, is what comes to mind for me. You know, obviously this year didn't pan out for Duke or UNC, but there's a lot of potential talent there. Um, but that's fascinating. I feel like some of those programs you just mentioned, Duke and UNC, are a bit of a transition period right now. Coach K just left, so did Roy Williams. So it'll be interesting to see if John Shire and um, blanking on who the UNC coaches at the Hugh, moment. Uh, is it Hubert Smith? Hubie Smith? Yes, thank you. Um, be interesting how their recruiting process goes. Obviously, Duke, UNC, like storied yeah. programs. But this year, the Big 12, I think, was probably the best. Not the Big yeah, the Big 12, the yeah. old, like Texas, yeah, all those schools down there. I feel like they were probably the best conference. I think we see Duke um, under John Shire come back to relevance quicker than we see UNC. Uh, just because Shire being a Duke legend, I remember watching him and how freaking awesome he was in yeah, college. I agree with that. I think they'll probably be the better team moving forward and seem that way based on this year. Awesome. Well, Tom, do you have anything else to add on this uh, Nova Georgetown story? No. I mean, it was great to see Nova gets the upset there as the lower seed. I believe they are the lowest seed to ever win the national title. Probably tied with, well, didn't Jimmy v, uh, Jim Valvano and NC State, weren't they an eight seed as well? That sounds right. Yeah, I think. So probably. Yeah, one of the two. Either there. way, either way, such a cool story. When you told me you were doing Nova winning the championship, I thought <laughs> I thought you were talking about only a few years back when uh, when they knocked down that what was it Christian was it Chris Jenkins knocked down that three to 
when beat UNC in the national title? Correct. I thought that's what you were talking about initially. So this is cool. I actually did not know too much about that story, but um, unless you got anything to add, Tom, we should probably wrap this one up. This is our longest episode to date. Um, it's the madness of March. It, there's so much you can talk about. We, we like barely scratched the surface with two of the so many amazing stories. Yeah, we could go for another hour probably. Yeah, I know. I have one uh, thinking about for next week, but I'm we'll not sure for next work. episode. Yeah, we sure will. So. Uh, thank you so much for listening in, tuning in, checking us out yet again. Uh, follow us on our socials at Going Back Pod, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And Tom, what do you got for us to take us out? Yeah, and kind of like you mentioned, just Jimmy V, uh, one of the most famous speeches ever. How we ended it, don't give up. Don't ever give up. All right, we'll see you next week. <laughs>